the Slaughter in May podcast. Welcome to the June 2023 edition of our Tax News Highlights podcast. I'm Zoe Andrews, PSL Council and Head of Tax Knowledge. And I'm Tanya Felling, Tax PSL Council. In this podcast, we will discuss HMRC's updated guidance on the Loan Relationships Unallowable Purpose Test and the first portion of its draft guidance on the multinational top-up tax, the Upper Tribunal's decision in Hargreaves Property Holdings, and the Advocate General's opinion in the Amazon State Aid case, as well as developments in relation to the taxation of the oil and gas sector and the consultation on how to reform transfer pricing permanent establishments and diverted profits tax for legislation. And we're excited to be joined again by our colleague Nele Dont, PSL Council in Competition, to discuss the EU's foreign subsidies regulation, although I suspect she might also have views on the Advocate General's opinion in Amazon. But before I hand over to Nele, I should note that this podcast was recorded on the 27th of June 2023 and reflects the law and guidance on that date. Now, Nele, in a nutshell, what is the use for subsidies regulation? Thank you, Tanya. I'm delighted to be joining this edition to talk about the EU's new foreign subsidies regulation, which entered into force on the 12th of January this year. I will start to apply from the 12th of July. So the regulation gives the European Commission the power to investigate financial contributions granted by non-EU governments to companies active in the EU with the aim of preventing subsidies from outside the EU, distorting competition within the EU. So it's driven by the concern that in recent years, foreign subsidies allegedly distorted the EU's internal market, including by providing their recipients with an unfair advantage to acquire companies or obtain public procurement contracts in the EU to the detriment of fair competition. So the regulation essentially aims to close a perceived regulatory gap whereby subsidies granted by non-EU governments go unchecked, while subsidies granted by EU member states are of course subject to close scrutiny under the EU state aid regime. Now to achieve this level playing field, the regulation contains notification obligations for M&A transactions and public procurement procedures that meet certain thresholds. Allowing the EC to scrutinize these transactions and procedures and assess whether a foreign subsidy has distorted or distorts the internal market. But the EC can also request ad hoc notifications for smaller transactions and procurement procedures. And the regulation gives the EC ex officio investigative powers where the EC suspects that there are distortive foreign subsidies. So there's broad powers for the EC here. And how is this regulation relevant to tax? Well, the relevance for tax becomes clear when we look at the definition of financial contributions in the regulation. The definition is very broad and captures a wide range of contributions, including the transfer of funds or liabilities, which, for example, covers the usual capital injections, grants, loans, setting off of operating losses and debt forgiveness, but it also includes fiscal incentives. And the financial contributions concept also encompasses the foregoing of revenue that is otherwise due, so for example, tax exemptions. 
ECs recently published Q&As, by the way, further explain how tax exemptions and tax holidays are considered for the purposes of the regulation. And I should also mention that the, the concept of third country is also very broad in the regulation because it refers to all levels of government and other foreign public entities and even private entities if their actions can be attributed to the third country. That definitely sounds like a broad approach. Can you tell us a bit more about possible outcomes of an EC investigation? What happens or could happen if the EC finds that a distortive subsidy exists? Well, of course, yeah. Where the EC finds that a distortive subsidy exists, the regulation gives it the power to impose redressive measures or accept commitments from the companies concerned to remedy the distortion. This could include behavioral commitments or structural measures, such as the divestment of assets. But the EC also has the power to eventually prohibit an acquisition or to prevent the award of a public contract to a subsidized bidder. So potentially far-reaching consequences. So you mentioned that the regulation will start to apply as of the 12th of July. Does this mean clients won't have to worry about it for any period before then? No, the regulation will start to apply on the 12th of July uh, this year and the EC can then begin ex officio investigations. But the regulation has actually has a re retroactive effect in that it will apply to foreign subsidies granted in the five years prior to the 12th of July, where the subsidies continue to distort the internal market after the 12th of July. And that for notifiable concentrations and public procurement procedures, this term is limited to three years, and the notification obligations do not kick in until the 12th of October this year. But I should add that the EC has clarified in its Q&As that transactions that sign after the 12th of July and have not closed by the 12th of October will need to be notified. So even though they have signed before the notification requirement kicks in on the 12th of October. So this basically means that companies who have received financial contributions from third countries should already be designing and, and implementing systems to collect information about contributions and, and track such contributions on an ongoing basis. Where possible, of course, using existing systems to minimize the significant administrative burden on the company. And they should also ideally collect evidence showing why significant financial contributions do not distort the internal market. This should then hopefully allow them to be in a good position to prepare notifications or respond to uh, an ex officio investigation by the EC as and when these occur. But shall we move on to another EU development? Certainly. On the 8th of June, Advocate General Cocotte delivered her opinion in the Amazon State Aid case, concluding that the General Court's decision should be upheld. This had annulled the European Commission's decision that Luxembourg had granted illegal state aid to Amazon through a tax ruling in relation to royalty payments. Broadly, the EC had decided that the ruling constituted state aid because, in its opinion, the chosen pricing method was not in line with the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines. The General Court annulled the decision, 
on the basis that the EC had failed to demonstrate that the guidelines had been misapplied so as to confer a selective advantage. But were the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines even the correct reference system against which the ruling should be assessed? This was one of the key points in Advocate General Cricot's opinion. The Commission had contended that, because Luxembourg and Amazon had not argued that the Commission had used an incorrect reference system, the Court of Justice could not examine this point. Advocate General Cricot disagreed. Luxembourg and Amazon had argued that the Commission had failed to demonstrate that there was a selective advantage, a necessary precondition for a finding of state aid, and determining the reference system is an integral part of determining whether there is a selective advantage. So in deciding whether the Commission was right to find a selective advantage, the Court inevitably had to consider whether the Commission had used the correct reference system. And how is this determined? In Fiat Chrysler, the Court of Justice decided that in direct tax cases, national law is the reference system. Materials such as the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines form part of the reference system only to the extent that they have been incorporated into national law. Advocate General Cucot added to this that a consistent administrative practice of using those guidelines in applying national law could also bring them into play as part of the reference system. But importantly, the Commission would have to demonstrate in its decision that such a practice existed. It had failed to do so here. Indeed, as Advocate General Cucot points out, it would have been impossible to show that there was an administrative practice in 2003, when Amazon applied for the ruling, that the Luxembourg tax authorities referred to the 2010 and 2017 editions of the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines. So she concluded that the Commissioner had used an incorrect reference system, thus vitiating the decision for error of law. In case the Court of Justice follows the Commission's argument that the Court was barred from considering the reference system itself, the Advocate General also considered whether assuming the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines as the reference system, the Commission's decision should stand. There are two related points I'd like to note in this respect. The first, she considered that both the determination of the reference system and the question whether it has uh, been correctly applied should be treated as questions of law subject to an appeal to the Court of Justice. She recognized that this could involve complex factual issues and this should be reflected in the standard of review. And this brought the opinion back to the novel point raised in her opinion on the NG state aid case, that the principles developed in the case law on aid schemes or general taxation should be transposed to cases where it is alleged that the law has been misapplied in favor of the taxpayer. So the result would be that a tax ruling could only be regarded as state aid where it is manifestly incorrect and therefore confers a selective advantage on the taxpayer. If the Court of Justice follows the Advocate General's opinion in these cases, this will or should significantly restrict the Commission's scope for challenging tax rulings on state aid grounds going forward. Um, so we'll see what happens. Now, coming back to the UK, you will remember that the Spring Finance Bill abolishes the Office of Tax Simplification. Somewhat unsurprisingly to my mind, a report from the House of Commons Treasury Committee published on the 13th of June has concluded that this sends the wrong signal namely that tax simplification is not a priority for the government, where it should be. 
because the report also concludes that the UK tax system is overcomplicated and this creates compliance burdens, confusion and disincentives to work or grow a business. It recommends that in the absence of a change of heart in respect of the OTS, the government should report annually to the Treasury Committee on steps taken towards simplification and offering a comparison of the complexity of the UK's tax system with those of different countries. It's actually quite ironic that in the same finance bill legislating for the abolition of the OTS, we have 169 pages of incredibly complex rules on the multinational top-up tax and the domestic top-up tax. HMRC has issued partial draft guidance on the multinational top-up tax for comments until the 12th of September. It generally covers what I would describe as the easier parts of the uh, legislation, including the scope of the rules and administrative provisions. We will have to wait for the next instalment of draft guidance for further information on the calculation of adjusted profits and covered taxes. The draft guidance contains some rather helpful worked examples, as well as a derivations table at paragraph 0990, which references the parts of the model rules, commentary and or administrative guidance on which each section is based. This will make navigating the legislation in the context of the OECD inclusive framework materials a lot more straightforward, especially given that the UK legislation often uses different defined terms from the model rules and does not necessarily follow the same order. HMRC has also issued revised guidance on the Loan Relationships Analog Work Purpose Test and the Corporate Finance Manual to set out its technical analysis of the legislation and provide examples of its practical application. The technical discussion reflects the approach taken by HMRC in recent cases and notes in a number of places that points are subject to ongoing litigation. The revised guidance states HMRC's view that the helpful comments of the then Economic Secretary on the introduction of the unallowable purpose test continue to be consistent with the law, even though other parts of the guidance would seem to apply an additional gloss to those comments. Where the Economic Secretary stated that in general terms financing to pay dividends would be unaffected, HMRC's related example of circumstances where the unallowable purpose test will not normally apply specifically assumes external rather than intra-group financing and that the dividend payment is required to meet market expectations on returns. In general, the fact that the examples are very specific and heavily caveated will limit their usefulness. Particular caveats relate to the reading across from examples or reading them together. For instance, if the view is that the unallowable purpose test will not normally apply to each of two examples, it does not follow that there is automatically the same view in relation to the facts of those examples combined. Continuing with consultations, as part of tax administration and maintenance day on the 27th of April, we have been promised a consultation on the transfer pricing, DPT and permanent establishment legislation. We previously speculated that this would be published to give us reading material for the late May bank holiday weekend, but we then had to keep ourselves otherwise entertained. The consultation finally came out on the 19th of June and is open for comments until the 15th of August. HMRC will also hold four consultation events between the 27th of June and the 10th of July. The last date to register for the final two events is Friday the 29th of June. One key principle underlying the proposals in relation to transfer pricing and permanent establishments is to align the UK's rules with OECD standards. The UK's transfer pricing rules are currently expressed as applicable with respect to a non-arm's length provision between two persons, where the participation condition is met and the provision gives rise to a tax advantage for at least one of them. 
It is being considered whether references to provision should be amended to align the wording more closely with that of Article 9, Associated Enterprises, of the OECD Model Convention, which refers to conditions that are made or imposed between the two enterprises in their commercial or financial relations. This would be to address a concern that provision might otherwise be interpreted too narrowly, despite the explicit requirement to interpret the domestic legislation in line with the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines, which essentially flesh out the requirements of the arm's length principle enshrined in Article 9. I wonder whether this is part of what seems to be a broader trend away from or scepticism towards what I might loosely call forms of conforming interpretation. Under the retained EU Law of Revocation and Reform Bill, the principle of conforming interpretation of UK with retained EU law would go if it is enacted as proposed to remove the first three subsections of Section 5 of the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018 and clarify that neither the principle of supremacy of EU law nor any other general principle of EU law is part of UK domestic law after the end of 2023. The Bill of Rights, with which the government had proposed to replace the Human Rights Act 1998, would have done away with the obligation to interpret domestic legislation in a way that is compatible with the rights enshrined in the European Convention on Human Rights, currently found in Section 3 of the HRA. And finally, whilst Clause 121 of the Finance Bill states that the purpose of the multinational top-up tax in Part 3 is to implement the income inclusion rule under Pillar 2, there is no provision for the legislation to be interpreted in line with the model rules, commentary or administrative guidance. Instead, Clause 262 allows the Treasury to amend the legislation by regulation to ensure consistency with Pillar 2. This regulation-making power is time-limited. It cannot be exercised after 2026. But going back to the transfer pricing, DPT and permanent establishment consultation, I think we went off on a bit of a tangent here. The government is also considering the removal of the participation condition, limiting the application of UK-to-UK transfer pricing, changes to the treatment of guarantees and a clarification of the interaction between the transfer pricing rules and valuation rules in the intangible fixed assets, loan relationships and derivative contracts regimes. As regards permanent establishments, the consultation moots updating the UK's domestic law definition to bring it in line with the most recent OECD model convention, which would effectively expand the current definition of an agency permanent establishment but the intention would be to retain the broker and investment management exemption on current terms. The overarching proposal in respect of DPT is a merger with corporation tax. Instead of there being a separate tax, the government envisages the creation of a new assessment power available in the same circumstances and which would also be at a higher rate. The energy, oil and gas profits levy was introduced in mid-2022 as an additional 25% tax charge broadly on ring fence profits with some adjustments, taking the level of taxation of oil and gas profits within the scope of the levy up to 65%. As originally enacted, the levy was said to apply for the period from the 26th of May 2022 until the 31st of December 2025. The Finance Act 2023 amended the legislation to extend the duration of the levy until the end of March 2028 and increased the rate to 35%, bringing the level of taxation of oil and gas profits within the scope of the levy up to 75%. The rate at which investment expenditure is relieved was reduced to ensure that the cash value of the relief remained the same. 
The spring finance bill, pending before Parliament, will make further changes to introduce a decarbonisation allowance, and the government announced a further tweak on the 9th of June. Harking back to the original announcement of the levy on the 26th of May 2022, stating that if oil and gas prices return to historically more normal levels, the levy will be phased out. The government announced an energy security investment mechanism, pursuant to which the level of taxation will return to the pre-levy figure of 40%. If both average oil and gas prices fall to or below 71.40 US dollars per barrel for oil and 54 pence per therm for gas for two consecutive quarters. According to the announcement, the thresholds have been calculated on the basis of 20-year historical averages. The announcement has already been criticised for ostensibly focusing tax cuts on the oil and gas sector. But this would only be the case if the thresholds were met before the planned end date for the levy, which the government does not appear to expect. The announcement indicates that on current forecasts, the change is not expected to impact levy receipts as the thresholds are not expected to be met before the planned end date. And it is entirely possible that whichever government is in office in March 2028 could come under pressure in view of the prevailing political and economic headwinds to continue with the levy in some form. So whether this additional change to deliver on a promise made in the original announcement of the levy will help to restore confidence to foster investment or add to the perception of a tax regime in flux remains to be seen. Alongside the statement, the government published terms of reference for a review of the fiscal regime with a view to encouraging investment in the UK's continental shelf, signalling a longer-term commitment to the sector. The upper tribunal decision in Hargreaves Property Holdings concerned assessments for interest withholding tax, with an aggregate amount of tax in dispute of just under £2.8 million. The taxpayer challenged the assessments on multiple grounds, including on the basis that the interest was not yearly, and that, to the extent that it had been paid to a UK company, it was exempt from withholding tax under Section 933 of the Income Tax Act 2007. As regards yearly interest, the Upper Tribunal confirmed that the First Year Tribunal had been entitled to look at the commercial substance and effect of the financing. Individual loans may have been short-term, but amounts repaid were almost inevitably re-advanced and, overall, the intention was to provide longer-term funding, so the interest was yearly. Under Section 933, tax is not required to be withheld where the person beneficially entitled to the income in respect of which the payment is made is a UK resident company. But what does beneficially entitled mean in these circumstances? The Upper Tribunal concluded that the term had to be construed purposively such that an entity which was interposed in the payment chain for no commercial reason other than to benefit from the exemption should not be regarded as beneficially entitled to the interest. It will be interesting to see how far this reasoning can be pushed. It has the possibility of introducing a significant amount of uncertainty into what one might have hitherto thought of as a bright-line mechanical set of rules. If the case goes to the Court of Appeal, this is one point which would benefit from clarification. But what else do we have coming up? As Naylor explained, the EU's foreign subsidies regulation will start to apply from the 12th of July. In the UK, we will have L-Day on the 18th of July when draft legislation for the next finance bill will be published, which feels rather soon given that the spring finance bill has only just gone through the Commons. Draft legislation should include provisions on the reform of tax reliefs for research and development. Some of the consultations published on 27th of April 2023 
as part of Tax Administration and Maintenance Day, are still open for comments, including those on changes to the Construction Industry Scheme and HMRC's information and data gathering powers, both of which close on the 20th of July. And that leaves me to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please contact Zoe or me, or your usual slaughter and may contact. Further insights from the Slaughter and May Tax Department can be found on the European Tax Blog, www.europeantax.blog. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Slaughter May Tax. For more information on this topic, or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.